Hey guys, it's Charles with the Barbershop Group Podcast. I'm glad to be back with you all uh, this Friday. I hope that you all have some great things planned for yourselves and for your families uh, this coming weekend. We know that it's cold weather time. Uh, go get you some apple cider or pumpkin spice. Or Well, Thanksgiving is around the corner, so you can get whatever you want uh, for that as well. But uh, whatever you do, guys, take care of yourselves and um, you know do something loving for yourself and for your family. You know, guys, as you all know, we love talking about men's issues. It's high time that we discuss these things openly. We know that there are a lot of guys out there who do not want to do so, but that's why we've created the podcast. You can kind of listen on your own. You don't have to be outed. Uh, you can take some time away and just hear some different perspectives. And speaking of different perspectives, guys, it's very important for me to tell you all uh, that the barbershop group is not about an agenda. Okay. Uh, well, let me correct that one agenda and our agenda is this. We want to invite all of you guys to share your lives, your histories, your stories, your interactions with others. We want you to share those things with us. It doesn't matter if you're black, white, straight, gay, Muslim, Christian, uh, liberal, if that's what you call yourself, conservative, if that's what you call yourselves, as you guys know, I can't stand labels, but however you identify we want to invite you to the conversation because one of the things that I know, especially when I go to campuses, um, you know, and university campuses, uh, we don't see enough men involved in the discussion about gender. And it's really, really hard to, um, to have a very thorough conversation about gender when, well, an entire group of people are missing. So... We invite you to the conversation. Listen, speaking of conversations, today I'm going to have a great conversation with uh, an awesome individual. I just, man, it's about time we've had him on the show. We've got Mark Green, the author of Remaking Manhood. He's also the author of a great little book, which happens to be called The Little Me Too Book for Men. Okay, we'll make sure that you guys have a link to it in the show notes so that you can purchase it. Um, it's a it's a great read considering the times that we are living in. And I argue that he can probably go back and instead of writing the little Me Too book for men, write the big Me Too book for men. But uh, I've got Mark Green on. Mark, are you there? How are you today? I'm very well. Thank you. Mark is, uh, is coming out of um, Manhattan, New York to us, guys, and he uh, was previously very involved with the Good Men Project as a senior editor. If you guys are not following the Good Men Project online, you need to do, to, do so. Uh, you can find them on Twitter. You can go to their, their, uh, their webpage. You can also uh, follow them on Facebook for articles on top of articles on top of articles that are really, really getting men to think about who they are, who they might want to be. And uh, just they, they address a lot of the thoughts that you guys have that you may not want to share with somebody else. Um, Mark uh, is also very heavily involved in diversity inclusion training today, doing a lot of consultation with businesses around the country. So Mark, again, it's great to have you on. Thanks for spending some time with us. Um, so, you know, Mark, I have definitely read your book and, and we want to get into, get into that. But first I want to know, um, what inspired you to write the little me too book for men? Kavanaugh. Um, <laughs> actually it wasn't just Kavanaugh. I also got invited by, um, a synagogue in, in California 
to come have a conversation about Me Too. And that was before Kavanaugh. But um, you were Lisa Hickey. To Brett uh, Kavanaugh for the people who don't know. Brett, yes, the, the Supreme Court hearings and all the chaos that came out of that. But, um, but initially, it was a pre- I was asked to do a presentation on Me Too along with Lisa Hickey, who is out in California, and she's the, uh, the publisher of The Goodman Project. So mm-hmm. I, had to get my, I had to get my thoughts together. And I'd already been writing some about, um, about Me Too and about the challenges that I've also uh, heard about. I mean, if you, if you want to understand Me Too, just ask women if they are willing to share their Me Too stories. And I don't mean strangers, I mean the women in your life, because they may up until now not have shared them with you. But once you begin to understand what people are dealing with, what women are dealing with in terms of that stuff, it, it, it might motivate you to be more uh, active in terms of opposing the kind of behavior that women are dealing with all the time. So I, I, I did that event at the, at the synagogue. I then was seeing the Kavanaugh thing and that book got written in about 45 days. I think wow. it's, a, it's a short book. It's only 75 pages. It's meant to be an easy lift, not too complicated, mm-hmm. but, uh, but it came very, very quickly. But it, it's while it's meant to be an easy lift, it's actually really hard for a lot of guys, Mark. And, uh, you know, maybe not for us, but why do you think it's so hard? Why is it such a heavy lift for some men out there? Well, I'll tell you something. I, I, I mean, I've done a lot of work around what um, what's called man box culture or the man box. And the man box was uh, conceptually was originated by a guy named Paul Kivel in mm-hmm. Oakland in the early 1980s. And he yeah. did um, a bunch of work with uh, boys in the high schools in the Bay Area. And he would go to them and ask them, you know, what does it mean to be a man? And the answers they kept giving back, you know, the rules of being a man were pretty simple and pretty consistent. And the more he asked this question in, in, in areas outside of California, everywhere, he kept getting these same answers, which mm-hmm. include, you know, you can probably guess what they are. It's don't show your emotions, be tough, be a leader, get a lot of women, uh, make a lot of money, be a, be a provider, not a caregiver. Right. Talk about sports. Don't talk about anything deep. Yeah. You know, these yep. are sort of the rules of being a man. And when you, when you mess up at it, when you cry on the baseball field or when you, whatever, you know, whenever you don't do it right, mm-hmm. what, what do we say to a boy starting at age four? You know, what do we say? We say, what are you a girl or what right. are you gay? Yeah. These are the things we say. And then we police, boys police each other's masculinity 24-7. This, these little microaggressions come hourly for decades. Yeah. So how is it possible that we couldn't come out of that kind of a process thinking that women and, and gay people are less somehow? They're just less. And it's not, it's not conscious. We don't consciously think it. We're literally programmed by years and years of being told whenever we mess up at being a man, what are you, a girl? Mm. So in that regard, you go to a man now and you say, hey, you know, the way you're treating women is like they're less. There's a, there's a disconnect for them. There's an emotional, reactive disconnect when yeah. all that programming comes up and challenges what you're saying. Right. Yeah, definitely. You know, um, when you were writing the book, you, you mentioned something I think is related to what you just uh, talked about when you, you spoke of men being anti-women, but also being anti-have-self. So they, they, oh, yeah. they hate a part about women and they hate a part about themselves. Yeah. So can, can you expound on that? What do you mean by that? 
Right. Well, it's all part of that same cycle of being policed. We, we all have, um, well, okay, in DNI work, in corporate DNI work, what we tell people in the boardrooms is we say, look, there's a thing called covering. And when a person comes to work at your office, uh, they, may, they may be covering certain authentic parts of themselves in order to make sure they fit in and that they're approved of by the boss, right? Mm-hmm, so right. they may roll their sleeves down to cover up a tattoo. Um, I hear the story all the time that, that gay people um, don't put a picture of their partner on their desk. Right, um, right. But I'll tell you, the, it, what's fascinating is the thing that gets covered most in corporations, and this is what people tell me over and over again when we take a little poll, mm-hmm. they cover the fact that they have children. And really? I, don't mean they, I don't mean they hide the fact that they have children. They simply never talk about their kids because, they, because there's this feeling in the air that if they're focused on when they have to pick their kids up or what they're doing in their child's life, then they're not paying attention to work, right? Yeah. So, so take that context and put it in our lives as individual men. We're covering the parts of ourselves that don't fit in the man box. Right. If we feel like we, we have really strong emotions, we hide those. If we feel like we're uh, uncertain about life and have, have a lot of self-doubt, we hide that. We're taught not to ask for help. We're taught all these things that are supposed to make us look tough and strong and like we're real men. But in the process of doing that, who we are authentically, mm-hmm. we become ashamed of. We right. become ashamed of our insecurities. We come ash- if, we, if we happen to be um, a little fluid on the gender binary, if we happen to be gay, God, that's a tough one for a, right. lot of, a lot of gay kids. They stay in the closet for years. We hide our authentic selves. And sooner or later, after being berated over and over and over, we become ashamed of that. Yes. So we, we spend half of our time thinking women are less and the other half thinking that we need to hide most of who we are authentically. And of course... What's the end result? We don't form real relationships. We don't form real connection. We don't form community. We get, we deal with huge levels of social isolation. Right. Yeah. And it's, that's, it's a lot of self hate. And I don't, I always say to guys all the time, you know, if you have bad relationships with, with men, right, you'll have bad relationships with everybody else. If you don't learn how to bond, uh, with, uh, with young guys, you know, you, you, young teenagers don't really bond with each other, not on something substantial. And, uh, it just gets progressively worse until now you're 45, 50, 55. And you're one of those statistics in America that is most prone to, uh, dying by suicide. And we wonder, well, damn, how did we get there? (laughs) Right. Mm -hmm. Um, so you know, one of the the other things that I was thinking about when I read your book, Mark, um, was this. I have a I have a sneaking suspicion that a lot of men out there don't feel comfortable yet defending women. Okay, right. protecting women uh, as equals in society in America. Um, I, I think that a lot of men feel like, well. Yeah, maybe I'll protect her if I'm getting this or if she's related to me or if I know all the circumstances. And right. if, you, you know, I don't I don't know if you get that sense, too, mm-hmm. but it's definitely something that I that I see. Uh, and it also at the same time that I'm seeing that I also see men afraid to check other men on bad behavior towards women. And in your book you talk about something called suppressing fire. Just what exactly is suppressing fire for those who haven't read the book? Well, um, 
when you say that men are a little reluctant to uh, stand up for women, what we're really talking about is we're talking about a population of men in America, for instance, uh, you know, maybe 10% of us men in America are, are sort of alpha males. And we're just, we're just going to run this domination game on everybody around us, right? Including women. And those guys make up one end of the spectrum. And maybe on the other end, we have 10, 20% of men who are, who are sort of have woken up to their responsibility as men. But in the middle, we have, we have millions and millions of men who are just silent. And they may know that, uh, that this alpha behavior toward women, the denigration of women making fun of them, you know, locker room talk, all of these minor denigrations of women, which are part of this larger pyramid that creates abusive, uh, abuse for women higher up. Mm. Um, and by that, I mean, it's a pyramid, which at the top is rape and at the bottom are, are you know, rape jokes and, and locker room talk and, right. and all of the stuff that is supposedly just part of being a man but creates a culture in which women are at risk. Mm-hmm. But most of us, the millions of us who are silent, I would, su- I would suggest to you that not only are we reluctant to stand up for women, we're reluctant to stand up for ourselves wow. because we have been policed and bullied and dominated and made to be ashamed of parts of ourselves that don't fit this narrow, narrow domination-based definition of manhood that mm-hmm. represents the man box. So yes. we we don't want to take on these alpha males because if you're standing around the water cooler at work and there's six guys and one of them is one of these alpha males and he says, Hey, look at her ass. We say to ourselves in our heads, Oh God, you know, Joe is such an asshole, but I'm not getting into it with him. Right. Uh, In that moment, Joe is publicly performing masculinity and he's defining it for the rest of us. Right. Mm-hmm. And we we keep our mouth shut because we know that if we simply look at Joe in that moment and say, Joe, don't talk that way. Joe's going to take all that nasty energy he just pointed at a woman and he's going to mark us. Right. And from that point forward, Joe is going to make our lives hell. If he's a manager, he may not want us in certain projects. He's right. going to make fun of us. He's going to talk to us about other people because these guys don't like being challenged. And that is the suppressing fire, right? We know it's out there. So we say to ourselves, okay, look, I'm just going to do my job. I'm going to take care of my wife. I'm going to make sure my daughters go to a good school. I'm going to protect them. But the rest of the women in the world, I can't get into it with Joe or, or I'm going to, I may lose my job. It may, it may, may hurt the women in my life personally. Yeah. But the long and short of it is that's sad is that you can't protect your wife and your daughters by, by remaining silent around the Joes of the world, because sooner or later, they're going to be out in the world and Joe's going to be there. Yeah, that's right. And the statistics that we currently have do indicate that it could easily be one of our one of our wives, girlfriends, one of our daughters. Yeah. Uh, one I, out I, of five. One yeah, one out of five. Out of five you know, so I, I, and you know, I, I think one of the things that really bothers me, uh, Mark, is this: is that we spend a lot when it comes to talking about rape. We spend a lot of our time trying to figure out how many people are being raped right debating debating the numbers yeah yeah so we 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 debate the numbers or we debate whether or not it's true but you really don't hear a whole lot of people talking about well what can we really do to to end it right so uh before moving on into the next topic i I really want to ask you mark what are some of the things that we can do to end it what can we contribute to it 
Well, this, this thing I, I mentioned earlier, the, the rape pyramid, there's all this behavior that we accept. When, when, when Donald Trump says what he says, and then he calls it locker room talk, mm-hmm. half the men in America go, oh, well, it's locker room talk. That's not a problem. <laughs> right, not a big deal. That's, that's, not, a, that's not real. That's just mm-hmm. locker room talk. But, but we have a culture of masculinity, which is based on the denigration of the feminine and based on treating women as less. Mm-hmm. We then do all of these little behaviors, which, you know, catcalling on the street, things yeah. like that, which yeah. are, hey, come on, lighten up. It's okay. That's just a little catcalling on the street. Mm-hmm. But what we're slowly doing is building this pyramid. And a little bit further up, you have, you know, maybe press, pushing, pushing yourself on a woman at a party because she's a little bit drunk. Or, and you go on up the line and you get to, you get to weird stuff like stealthing or, uh, or uh, you know, unwelcome photographs. And then you and go what, is, what is stealthing for our listeners? What is stealthing? Well, I never knew what it was until I started looking into this, but the, the rape culture pyramid uh, includes stealthing, which is to have sex with a woman with a condom on and then sneak it off in the middle. Oh, got it. Okay. So, so these are all levels and, and every man in the world has to ask himself, okay, well, maybe I'm okay with catcalling, but this other stuff sounds wrong. There are men out there in the world that think right up to rape is fine. And mm. when we accept locker room talk when we don't speak up about catcalling when we don't say hey dude not cool we are creating the foundation of that pyramid the top of which has really terrible things happening so the culture of rape the culture is built on our silence wow that is something else that's guys that is a lot to consider but we do see it happening let's be honest you see it happening uh at work as he said, around the cooler, you see it happening in, in the gyms. And in fact, Mark, you know, I used to always keep a gym membership uh, for a number of years. Having been a, a former athlete, it was just a thing that I did, right? But, but at a certain point, something clicked in my head, and I stopped wanting to go to the gym, Mark, because um, I noticed that most of the guys would be standing around, and instead of them using the machinery, they'd just be standing around looking at the women using the machinery. But I couldn't use one of the machines myself because, you know, you're sitting on it, guy. And yeah. I'm paying, you know, 40 or $50 a month for this membership, and nothing's going on. Yeah. You, you see? Um, it just, I was like, this is dumb. But there are a lot of people who, who, who do that. Um, you know, one of the things that I think that um, we don't hear a lot about when we when we talk about the Me Too movement and we, you know, right now, it seems like America is very, very uber sensitive with with regard to race and stuff like that. A lot of people out there, Mark, don't believe that if you are a minority, uh, you could be a, a bigot or biased towards women. You know, somebody might say, well you know, I've been systemically oppressed. How could I possibly uh, be a bigot towards women? But you say, Mark, yes, it's possible. Well, how is it possible? Well, I want to just back up and be really clear about bias, because I think, you know, what we're talking about here is generations of boys, regardless of their ethnicity, Mm. who are often taught your value is that you're better than so-and-so. Right. Uh, and in the case of every single boy in the world, there are always women nearby, regardless of your culture, your, your geography, your, your ethnicity, your religion, whatever. Right. So bias against women, that is men are better than women, is the first universal bias that boys get taught. And um, when we teach boys that your value is you're better than someone else, instead of don't 
try to make yourself feel good about yourself by putting someone else down. Don't do that. Mm -hmm. When we take this first approach to boys and say, yeah, you're better than girls, uh, denigration of the feminine, all the stuff we do to train boys to hide their emotions, that stuff right there is a doorway to all other forms of bias. Because once you teach a boy he's better than a woman, it's, it doesn't take much effort to teach him he's better than, than an immigrant, better than someone of a different religious belief, better than a person of different color. Yeah. And, and this is why the denigration of women in our culture, when, men, when one man denigrates a woman around you, you can rest assured he's doing it with a child too, with a boy. He's teaching yeah. a boy that, which, which leads to all these other forms of bias, which are basically eating our culture alive. I mean, the reason we can't function socially is because we have such a such a deeply ingrained level of racial and gender bias in this country and so much violence being done right and 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 it 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 causes a, a level of trauma that's just with us all the time we're all afraid of each other we're all divided we're all uncomfortable with speaking we've literally men in america have been silenced and traumatized to the point where we stand by and let people do damage right in front of our eyes. Right. <laughs> right. This is true. You know, it makes me think about uh, a, a recent video that I saw of some people uh, fighting, um, fighting in a Popeye's uh, over a chicken sandwich. Mm. Uh, don't know what city that was in, but, you know, I'm like, wait a minute. Uh, hey, tough guys, who's stepping in? Nobody, actually, Mark. Nobody's yeah. stepping in. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. nobody's stepping in um and and it's so weird because while you hear stories of patriotism or dare i say well what we think might be patriotism you hear these types of stories of rah rah yeah kick his ass this and that when it comes to actually like defending people and yeah. and and honoring people it's not a lot of that happening these days <laughs> yeah you see you know, my hope is that, that we'll begin to reach a tipping point at some point where we say, I understand the cost to me of not mm -hmm. stepping in. I understand what's happening. I mean, you don't get a Donald Trump in the world wrecking everything if we're not a divided population, if we're not, we've not mm -hmm. been set intentionally against each other. Mm -hmm. And when we talk about this question of, of men's lives being impacted by the man box, mm -hmm. With the social isolation issue, you talked about boys don't really form friendships. Yeah. Naomi Way has a book called um, Deep Secrets, and she did research for 30, she's done it for 30 years with boys in entering adolescence. When boys enter adolescence, they, you know, age 13, 14, they talk about their best friend. They use the word love. They say, I love my best friend. Mm -hmm. And the other thing they all say, regardless of race, ethnicity, location, they all say that without my best friend, I would go crazy. Wow. Then four years later, same boy, she's interviewing the same boys. Um, these boys say, well, yeah, you know, Mike's my best friend, but I, he lives around the corner still, but I don't see him that much anymore. Mm -hmm. He's a great basketball player. And then they say, no homo, <laughs> but he's a great basketball player. They're like, they're, they're letting you know that, that I'm not gay for him or anything, but he's a great right. basketball player, but I don't see him anymore. And one of the boys said, yeah, that friendship feels like it's kind of on a crossfade. It's kind of going away. Mm -hmm. And what she found out in her research was those boys are busy proving what they're not instead of proving what they are. And they're proving they're not a little kid, girly, or gay. Right. And in the moment that they disengage from those, those close friendships in late adolescence, boys' suicide numbers become four times that of girls. Yeah. 
So we, we are training and shaming and bullying boys out of human connection. And then we spend our lives haunted by the loss of it. Right. Yeah. Yeah. That is something else. You know, it just, as we're winding down, it makes me think about uh, something that I saw several years ago. I was, I was driving, uh, I think I was driving to the airport and I was passing by a plaza and I saw an African-American young man uh, walking through the plaza. The plaza, a lot of the stores were already gone. Um, and as he was walking on the sidewalk, he looked into the glass, Mark, and he paused for a minute to adjust his shirt, adjust his pants, you know, pull his pants down a little bit more, make sure he had his sag just right. And he looked at himself in the, in the window again and he kind of checked his, his appearance. Yeah. And I was like, what in the hell are you doing? There's nobody around you, man. Like, really? And it dawned on me, oh, wait, I got to have this appearance, right? I have to look this the part, okay? And uh, there was just so much that went into that uh, as I sat there, you know, at that traffic light, just kind of staring at this guy, man. And somebody blew at me when the light turned green because I was just in awe. Whoa. Like, Taking it in, yeah. You know? Um, but, but there are a lot of, there are a lot of men and there are especially a lot of African-American men, Mark, who have probably felt that they had to play a role as a result of man box culture, as a result of, um, uh, of racism and, and, uh, you know, bigotry in this country. Um, as we talked about earlier, there is a lot happening with men and there's a lot of conversation about men. Um, but I think one of the things that we don't hear a lot about is we don't hear a lot of African-American male voices talking about men. Now, don't get me wrong. Obviously, they are talking. I'm one of them. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but we're not we're not getting the the stage, if you will. Right. You know, and, and, and it almost feels like it's racism all over again. Why? Good question. I, you know, they talk about, uh, you hear a lot about white feminists and then um, other feminist voices not getting heard because the white feminist voice is so dominant mm -hmm. and so oblivious, right? So oblivious to, to other voices. Um, I, I think the, the, the big challenge right now is for people to get a simple fact in their heads and get it in straight. And the fact is this, I, a part of my DNI work um, includes looking at research from organizations like Deloitte. Mm -hmm. And the numbers are coming in now about what happens in an organization when you have a fully diverse culture at the leadership level. Yeah. When you have women, people of color, LGBTQ, everybody is yeah. in at the top. You get dramatically higher levels of profitability, of performance. Right. You That's get right. something in like 68% higher long-term value creation. Mm -hmm. Literally, an organization made up of white men will not be able to compete effectively against an organization that's fully diverse. That, that, right. that company will be out of business, right. which is why the white nationalist model is such a joke because white men alone simply cannot compete with a diverse group, a, a, a diverse population, either in terms of a political system, or social system, anything. Yeah. So I guess what I'm getting at here is that if you want any endeavor to be fully rich and valid, you must include a, a wide range of voices. 
And my hope is that uh, once this podcast is done, I can, I can take it out into the, the community that I'm part of and say, guys, you need to hear this part of the conversation. This is really important, right? Yeah. We are doing the very thing we know statistically is a failing strategy. Yeah. We got white men talking to white men about white men. <laughs> right. It's not going to work. This it's is, not going it's it's to help yeah. masculinity. It's not right. going to make a healthy masculinity. Yeah. Well, you know, I, I, I say, Mark, and I shoot it straight. You, you know that you've listened to, you know, a podcast or two and you're familiar with our organization um, when it comes to this particular issue. Uh, I, I, for one, don't believe that there's one iteration of manhood and masculinity. I think that there are those that are healthier than others, but I, I don't tell you, hey, you've got to be like this. Right. When it comes to uh, African-American men and American racism and masculinity, I don't believe that it's of anybody's interest at this point to really include African-American men's voices uh, in the conversation. Because in order to do that, we have to eventually address racism in mm. the country, yeah. right? You know, we eventually have to talk about the fact that I, in some cases, still have to move out of the way. Mm. If I'm in a grocery store shopping, I have to move out, move out of the way when uh, a white man is approaching or a, a white woman and her children approaching. And I could have my kids with me and mm. I've got to tell my kids, hey, guys, move over. Right now, some of that could just be embedded in me and that stuff that I've just, you know, as a result of racism, it's it's there. Right. But unless you are going to talk about that, I don't think we're at a place where we're going to be able to talk about iterations of manhood in the African-American community, because, I mean, let's face it, you still have a lot of you're talking about men who exist today, whose grandfathers and great grandfathers were called boy not so long ago, mm -hmm. right? You're talking about a group of men today where, um, you know, in terms of our educational system, Mark, in the United States, there's very little that the educational system forces you to learn about African-American men or about African men. Right. You know, like when you look at our institutions, there's very little yeah, you know, Dr. Martin Luther King, but you don't have to learn about a Dr. Martin Luther King. You actually have to learn more about former President Barack Obama than you do about uh, a Malcolm X or a Stokely Carmichael or any of these guys uh, that were talking about being men in the community at the same time repelling racism. You know, how do African-American men get to be men without addressing racism? I don't think we can. I agree 100 percent. And the, but, the, you know, the other thing that this always comes back to is this catastrophic level of social isolation. If we if we want to have a rich life, we have to create equity across the board. Right. We have to create connection across the board. Right. And right now, man box culture is a culture of domination. It's a pecking order culture. We yeah. strip away any authentic connection and we replace it with this idea that, well, I'm a white guy, so I'm on top of all these folks. And then there's some white guys above me and I have to take grief from them. And then I dish it out to the people below me. And if I want to feel yeah. good about myself, I have to attack people of color and whatever, because right. that's how a domination culture works. Right. Yeah. yeah. But whenever you rely on domination to validate yourself, you're also isolating yourself mm -hmm. and when you when you live a life of isolation like i mean i've felt it in my own life for 40 50 years 
this sense that a either I fear men, I don't trust them, I don't like them because of all this bullying and policing and whatever, right. or I fear people of color, I fear uh, brown people, Latino, whatever it is, people from India, doesn't fucking matter. Yeah. What I end up, I end up in a gated community in front of a high def TV <laughs> with a life that means nothing. It's yeah. empty. It's utterly, completely empty because the richness of human connection is gone. Right. And, and when you live a life where you feel isolated, where you feel lonely, it's the equivalent of smoking a pack of cigarettes a day. It literally spikes your likelihood of heart disease, diabetes, obesity, depression, mm-hmm. suicide, all this stuff. It's li- we, we by, be, by buying into a domination culture and buying into racism, white men are dying earlier from loneliness. Yeah. yeah. No, I, Great I, way I, to live. Heck of a, yeah. boy, look, we won. Look how lucky we are. You know, I don't doubt that at all, you know, and, and uh, you know, Mark, it, it's been great to have you on. Um, I thank you for spending some time with us. I, I do have one uh, one observation or one 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 last thing to share with you that I think you'll find uh, very amusing. Yeah. Um, an individual approached me um, probably a couple weeks ago, and I guess he felt I was safe enough to to ask this question of. Uh, he says to me, he says, hey, Charles, um, you don't you don't really, really believe that African-Americans are oppressed today, do you? Like, you don't believe that, do you? Mm. And I thought to myself, what in the hell? Like, first of all, but first of all, by the way, the guy works for me. OK. All right. He's a subordinate. And I hate to say subordinate in this case, but he does work for me. OK. Um. And um, I thought to myself, well, damn, am I like just, you, am I safe to you? Am I a safe Negro? Like, do, did you not expect for me to have any thoughts or feelings or negative reactions about this? No, I can't tell you what the numbers are on oppression today. However, if you're asking me this in the way that you phrased it, there's something off about your thinking. Okay. He's looking for you to give him permission to feel no guilt. Mm. He's asking you to do unpaid emotional labor for him. You see? Yeah. Unbelievable. Yeah. Okay. And it's, it's just, that's to me just an extension of the way that men in this country have set things up. <laughs> okay. Like, like any, anything that, that I feel that's negative, any negative experiences that I've had, anything that's difficult for me to, to break through and every it's my fault right there are no other factors involved no historical factors no external factors it's just simply me okay Hmm. and that if i see anything wrong with this environment in which i live mark it's my fault Hmm. right and i think that that's something that is a part of that man box culture too it's just you just couldn't cut it right right I don't have my foot on your neck. You just couldn't cut it. It's a culture of individualism instead of a culture which, which understands that we are all embedded in relationships and a larger community, larger, larger, right. larger. Yeah. You know, I also, I, when, when, when white guys say to me, okay, you know, what is this about white privilege? I say, look, it's a simple story. Cop pulls you over, you get out of the car. Do you, do you get out of the car being afraid you may not be alive in five minutes? Because if you're black, you could die. Good die. And that's not a joke. That's right. the truth that's of right. it, man. We get out of the car, we're like, hello, officer, how you doing? We mm. don't have to. I mean, if they catch us with something, then it gets ugly. But we don't step out of the car 
thinking we might die because of a taillight. Yeah. And the list of people who have died uh, over the years is just getting longer and longer. And I think, yeah. I think some white men are beginning to go, okay, I get it. Right. Get it. Something's going on, right? Something's yep. going on. Yeah. Guys, you all have been listening to Mark Green. He's a former senior editor of the Good Men Project. Again, if you're not following the Good Men Project, please do so. You can find them on Twitter. You can follow their, their website and you can sign up for their alerts on, uh, on Facebook as well. You can also follow Mark at Remaking Manhood on Twitter and on Instagram. Uh, he's doing some great work all around the country with diversity and inclusion. It is extremely important that we not only speak about diversity, that we also include people. And one of the things that I like to say about that, guys, um, and of course, Mark can say a lot more than I can, but it's this. When we speak about inclusion, you're not inviting somebody to the table to think the way you think. Okay. So, you know, you guys out there listening to this podcast, we're not inviting you to the table to think the way we think. We're inviting you to the table because there's room. Okay. That's diversity and inclusion. Um, you know, and I think that that goes a long way when we're talking about maleness and manhood in America and around the world. But I think that it also goes a long way when we're just talking about human beings at large. Okay, guys, listen, um, if you like today's show or if you dislike today's show, either way, doesn't matter. Email us at info at the barbershop group dot org. You can also hit us up on Instagram, Twitter and Facebook. And we also want to mention this to you guys. If you are not following us on Twitter or, or uh, Facebook, you're missing out on a lot of great articles. We share a lot from the Good Men Project as well as other um, sources out there. And it doesn't matter where the source is coming from. We just give it to you and you can do with it what you wish. But we are here to provide you with the, uh, the, uh, the information and an opportunity to think about those things. So make sure that you follow us on those uh, social pages as well. Mark. Yeah, it's great stuff on Instagram. I always enjoy what you guys put up. We try. We try. Mark, again, I'm so thankful for being able to spend some time with you. Uh, I thank yeah. you for your work and for your book. Again, guys, go to the show notes uh, where you can um, click the link to purchase uh, Mark's book. It's very intuitive. It's a short read. Uh, and it's just it's stuff that, guys, we, we knew it. We've known it all along. It's just that now it's being talked about openly. So it's an opportunity to, uh, to, to reflect. Okay. So guys, we hope that you all will be well. Uh, have a great weekend and we'll talk to you soon.